we're at a time now which is, is a transition. All these people feeling for the first time, oh we can win. Let's focus on what's, what we can do here and now to change things. And I think one of the reasons why people love community energy is because it helps build community, it builds connection. You know where your electrons are coming from, you know the story of them. You're listening to Voices of Community Energy, a podcast about a bottom-up transition to a new energy system. About how people power can lead to locally owned renewable power. About people who are taking the power back and generating their own energy. I'm Tom Knockholds. And I'm Bean Crane. And we'll be your guides through this first series of stories about community energy. I believe a just transition is one that brings a community together along the way on the journey. In any change we need to make, in any transition we need to make, we need to ensure that it's a fair one, it's a just one. For this episode, I spent some time in Latrobe Valley to hear from people on the front lines of the fight for a just transition away from coal. Wendy Farmer from Voices of the Valley and Dan Musel from Earthworker. How did it begin? Oh, you can say your name first. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> I'm Wendy Farmer. So my name's Dan Musel. <clears throat> Dan Mossil, and uh, we're sitting in Morwell right now, about 300 metres away from the edge of the Hazelwood Open Cut Mine. The Latrobe Valley has historically been the heart of coal power generation for Victoria and is now the heart of the discussion around how to plan for a just transition as Hazelwood, the dirtiest coal fire power station, officially closed on March 31st. I heard more about the history of Hazelwood and its role in the valley from Dan. All that separates the town, the south side of the town from the mine is the freeway. So we look out from the porch and we can see Hazelwood Power Station from here. So coal and power generation are a really big part of this place. Yeah, as, as you know, 1600 megawatt power station that provides almost a quarter of Victoria's electricity has done for decades. Hazelwood's a pretty big part of, yeah, of that as well. And especially over the past decade, because Hazelwood is quite a polluting station because of its age and because of the nature of the brown coal that it burns. Hazelwood has also been really central to debates and, and discussion and conflict over the energy policy in Australia and climate change policy in Victoria especially. There have been questions asked about Hazelwood's future for, you know, since the 90s I reckon, especially because the power station was actually scheduled to close in the 90s and it's had its life extended a number of times by different state governments since then um, to the point where lots of people including most of the workers until a couple of months ago expected that the power station would still be operating till at least 2025. Were they, with workers, told that that was the expectation? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So there's lots of bitterness in the workforce because lots of workers had recently taken on mortgages, had recently signed up new car leases through, the, through their job under the expectation and under, you know, pretty strong advice from their employer that they'd still have jobs in 2025, if not 2032. Um, so, yeah, I reckon questions would have been asked in the 90s about... Um, the future of Hazelwood and definitely in the mid-2000s is when attention would have become more and more um, prominent on the power station 
because again I think 2005 was around then was when its life was extended again by the state government and by that stage of course the power industry had been privatized and so all the power stations were owned by private profit driven um, companies which didn't share the same responsibility for coordinating the stable provision of electricity to Victoria they were interested in making a buck and for many of them that meant <clears throat> cutting costs and um, wherever they could shedding jobs wherever they could uh, and and not necessarily yeah, planning for the next phase of um, cleaner power generation in Victoria so there wasn't necessarily a replacement there for Hazelwood and I think that's partly why its life has been extended so many times. While Hazelwood has been the center of many debates over the years, it also caused some negative health effects during the tragic mine fire, which was a huge turning point for Wendy. Before the Hazelwood mine fire, I was pretty quiet, didn't do public speaking, didn't do, sat at home and watched TV, basically didn't really, you know, I did some community things, but didn't really get too involved in things. And when the Hazelwood mine fire started, that particular day, my husband got a call from work to say everybody had to come into work. There's a big fire in the mine. It took him nearly three hours to get to work because there was fires all over Latrobe Valley. Um, he, he worked for the few days um, at the start of the fires and he got really, really sick. I call it the man flu. <laughs> so, you know, men are dying. That, he was really sick. Anyway, um, he was speaking to my daughter in Melbourne one day when he was at, back at work, and he said, don't you really realise what's happening down here? It's terrible. And her living in Melbourne hadn't really heard about um, what was happening. She knew there was a fire, which they kept calling was a bushfire, but she really didn't know what was happening. Once Wendy's daughter came down to visit the fire with her father, they realized that this ignorance was no coincidence, but rather an intentional effort to keep things quiet. As they were driving up, they actually took some photos of the, um, the smoke and driving up to the offices, and they're sort of on the outside of Hazelwood. They're not quite inside. Anyway, um, they were surrounded by security guards. There was about six ca cars and cops and security everywhere. And, saying, what are you doing? Why are you here? Why did you take photos? You can't take photos. And my daughter, being an activist in Melbourne, thought, what is going on? Why are they wasting time on, you know, asking people this? What is actually happening here? So she, she came home and she said, Mum, we can't do nothing. You've got to do something. And I'm like, well, what do you expect me to do? The fire sparked something inside Wendy, and from here on out, she became more politically active and engaged in shaping the future of her town. So we started um, organising a rally at Kerner Hall, um, and we had about 1,500 people turn up. On that particular day of the rally, so that was um, a couple of weeks into the fire, there was a lot of smoke. Um, people were, you know, really, really angry. Um, we'd had Rosemary Lester down two days before saying it's okay just don't breathe the smoke um, we'd heard that they changed um, CO levels so it was safe for community to breathe what firefighters would normally put on full protection um, you know and we were getting really conflicting information at the same time they were telling us that it has no effect on health but we were seeing family and friends getting sick we were seeing our animals getting sick 
and it was only you know days before that that they took it away from being a bushfire to a mine fire because a mine fire and a bushfire are very different you know your smoke is different you the way you chase the smoke is different like you imagine living in Morwell where you're sitting around a fire um, and you just can't move away the smoke's coming straight in your face and you just can't move away that's what people were living with and they were living with that for 45 days so we had this protest and um, it was the first time really that Melbourne and anywhere else in Australia was advertising what was really happening in the valley we this was community standing up and saying enough we're not going to take this you know and it was very different because we never had activists from Melbourne Melbourne involved in those very early days um, we then that that next week we actually took to the streets of Melbourne and there was probably only a dozen of us because most of the people here were sick they couldn't go down anyway or they had family that they had to care for or you know it wasn't that easy to actually even get a dozen of us to go down there um, and we just went to Parliament House and we're like this is just not good enough you can't ignore our community like this Wendy touches on the divide between the Latrobe Valley and Melbourne, which are about two hours away by train, but very different culturally. The valley is a cluster of fairly conservative mining towns, while Melbourne is a progressive global city. Campaigns surrounding Hazelwood's closure in the mid-2000s started to bring some of these differences to the surface, as we'll hear about later from Dan. But in the case of the mine fire, Wendy describes some good progress in solidarity and collaboration. Connection with activists came a little bit later, but actually our connection started, I felt, in a really positive way because what we did with them is often activists have come down to Latrobe Valley and told us what we wanted. So we actually wrote to the activists and said, please don't tell us what we need, but help us. Understand what we're going through, understand what Latrobe Valley needs, and while you call for the closure of Hazelwood, you don't help our community. All you're doing is making our community hate you even more. Okay, so we brought about 300 people plus down to, over the time, about 300 plus people down um, to Latrobe Valley, including the Greens, including Adam Brandt and Alan Sandal. And we've said, don't tell us what we want, listen to us, share what we're about. Um, and that was actually when you saw the Greens campaign change from Shut Hazelwood to Transition Hazelwood. Mm. So it was this community that made them change the way that they spoke. Mm. And it's really important, I think, that communities, activists need to learn that communities need your support for what is needed. So it's a Victorian responsibility what is happening here with the closure of Hazelwood. We need Victoria's support, but we don't need Victoria to tell us what to do. Mm. We need this community to tell those supporters what we need. And I think that's a really fine line that a lot of activists are starting to learn. One of the main responses to this fire was to demand that the health department do an inquiry into health effects and hold someone accountable. This required a huge amount of community research, so Voices of the Valley was formed as an organization to take on this challenge. So we asked the health department, is it really affecting our health? Are people dying? They said no. It's not true. You know? Um, so we actually did our own research into whether it had happened. 
Um, we and were, who's we at this point? Voices of the Valley. Okay. Oh, sorry. So in in between there, of course, we the the protest became Voices of the Valley. Um, we did our own research, so there was a team of people that um, went through all the local papers for the last five years. They went to the State Library in Melbourne, into the archives there, and compared the deaths and what people had died of. And we saw that there was a huge rise in um, deaths. We notified the health department, we notified the local politicians, we notified whoever we could. The first inquiry showed some health risks but refused to hold any of the institutions, the health department or the mining companies accountable. This means that the blame fell on the community for not leaving town. It also gave no answers as to what they could do about it. Voices of the Valley was not satisfied so they went about gathering more research and went back to Parliament demanding another inquiry. So we had the second inquiry which looked at um, the health of, or sorry, did deaths occur? the health of the community and what we could do about the health of the community. So I didn't really focus on the mine fire as such, but the long-standing health of this community, which was really, really good because, you know, it's something that all reports have shown that we don't have good health in Latrobe Valley, yet nothing's ever been done about it. But it also focused on um, rehabilitation of the mines. So I picked up Anglesey Mine because of course they closed in that meantime. Um, so that was the first one on the mines and then it picked up the rehabilitations of the other mines and making these companies that own them responsible for what they've got. Um, yeah, so for me, it's been a long three years so far, but it's been a rewarding three years in the fact that we've seen over that time when community stands up to call for change and stands together, they can actually make change happen. You know, we've got a health innovation zone, we've got an economic zone. We called for an economic zone. We wrote to all the politicians before the federal election and said, Latrobe Valley needs an economic zone. And our resp the response we got back is it can't be done. Well, it's been done. Yeah, so communities can come, come up with ideas, work together, and they can actually make change. Wendy's work on health soon broadened into work on transitioning the entire valley after Hazelwood's closure. It became quite clear that one of the things with health was um, hope and jobs, purpose. You know, and one of because we have such a high unemployment, people's health goes down. They need empowerment. They need connections. Um, so we actually, through that inquiry, realised that more had to be done on that transition, on bringing people together, making sure that what happens is good for the valley and it gets people out of bed in the morning. If they're out of bed in the morning, if they're connecting with people, if they're talking to people, if they're in their social groups, they're working, wherever they are, they feel empowered. Two years ago when we really started Just Transition, we were being shot down. You know, the bullets were coming fast and hard saying, you know, shut up, <laughs> we don't want to hear about it. Um, now everybody's talking about a just transition. I believe a just transition is one that brings the community together along the way on the journey. Um, there are others that might believe that it's about Hazelwood workers coming out of Hazelwood and getting paid the same amount of money they were getting paid in Hazelwood. Now that's okay, they can have their opinion of what they think a just transition is. 
but I actually think it's that success of community working together and having jobs for our young kids to go to, mm. having purpose for our young kids to get out of bed, you know, having our kids actually go through school and say, yes, I'm going to have a job when I finish. While most people agree on the need for jobs and hope, there's a lot of debate around where they will come from. A lot of people in the valley have been advocating to keep coal power plants open and find new ways to drill and utilize coal reserves. Wendy explains how hard it can be to detach from coal after growing up here and being raised to accept the negative health impacts as a necessary sacrifice in the name of jobs. Some people will ignore it because they believe, well, you can either have jobs or health. But they, I don't think they even think of it that clearly. Um, I have several friends, and some of them have been managers in some of these mines, and they say, but it's not as bad as it used to be. You know, when, when we were first here, you used to have big specks of coal drop on your washing. You know, now you only have little specks. <laughs> so it's fine. <laughs> yeah, so it's okay. Like, so there's the, the acceptance of you live in a coal community, you will put up with a certain amount of it. And I've always accepted that. But at the same time, I was taught that it was okay. I was taught that anything that coming coming out of those stacks was just steam. But you know, when you grow up with something in your backyard, you believe what you're told. Yes, it's been great for the jobs. It's been great for, you know, everybody. When I left school, everybody had a job. You were really lazy if you didn't have a job because the guys went into the SEC and the girls went into the department stores that were supported by, you know, the guys working at the SSC. We all had a job, but we also had community. And what I mean by that is where I live, the um, recreation centre, the running tracks was built by the SSC, was built by the guys that worked there. They put money into it every week out of their pay. The Maui Hospital was built by the guys that worked at Yulon. They actually gave so much of their money a week to the local community to build what the community was needed. They were com That was community. That's what we need to go back to. A big part of going back to community for Wendy is continuing to produce energy for Victoria, but owning that production process locally and making sure it's not destructive to health. It's no surprise that Wendy started to advocate for community energy projects as a key part of bringing jobs and hope back to the valley. Oh, my vision for those is huge. I, as I said, I want to see um, solar panels made in Latrobe Valley. I want to see Latrobe Valley have its own energy retailer. I want Latrobe Valley to not only take the power back, but keep the power here, as in, you know, producing it. Really, I think we're capable of doing it. I really want to see research into renewable energies and what is the future um, done in Latrobe Valley. Um, you know, our history shows that Latrobe Valley knows energy. We've done it for 90 years. It makes sense for Latrobe Valley to be um, looked at as an energy hub. But we do need government regulation to start looking at how renewable energies do play a part in the market. Let's stop denying that it's there and it is going to be a new way. We don't have to use all the coal in Latrobe Valley in our generation. Um, and I believe we can move, they can comp the coal and the renewable energies can complement each other until eventually, you know, your new technology will probably take over. How can Latrobe Valley be the um, place that we, we produce the solar?
even if it is an investor outside working with the community, would be much better if the community owned it. You know, if we could um, fund for the community to own it and that money going back into the community. I do believe co-ops and social enterprises are going to be the way to go. I think we will move back towards that. I actually think people are fed up with what is happening at the moment, you know, regardless of where you sit on the fence politically, people are fed up with what is happening because there seems to be no progress. One source of hope is that the state government has proposed transition funding to help new industries establish themselves in the valley. Wendy has some clear and grand visions for all the opportunities this could bring for La Trobe Valley, and community-owned renewable energy plays a big part in the transition plan that Voices of the Valley put together. We're looking at a few different um, community projects. We'd like to um, do a solar garden. We'd like to, we've actually got one site that we're really interested in putting solar panels on his roof or the company's roof um, because it's community-owned enterprise. Um, but yeah, we'd, we're looking into how we you know, get that funding for transition panels how do we get those um, batteries? We'd like to have our own batteries manufactured in Latrobe Valley. There is a company that's interested in Latrobe Valley with batteries. Um, you know, what is next in energy? Yeah, we're interested in making sure it happens in Latrobe Valley. You know, and we keep refining what needs to be done and how we can do it. But you know, how the community can be engaged with that. We've um, done a couple of forums in different places around Latrobe Valley, talking to people, trying to get people engaged, getting their ideas also. How's that been going? What it's been really good. It's been really good. Um, we've had a couple of really successful, engaged um, conversations. Mm. So it's been really exciting to see happen. Yeah, you um, were mentioning before that people read the stuff or hear about it and want to get involved. And what do you think is behind that desire? And do you think that, like, what are some of the ways people can get involved? So I guess um, initially we're looking after really people with um, support for how, how to put business plans and things like that together. We don't have all the skills for that. We've got a lot of ideas, but not necessarily all the skills. Um, we've got to build support through the community for community ownership. There's a lot of people that are starting to be interested in, you know, what can we do? Um, look, we've still got those negative people that are, um, you know, well, we can't do anything. It's not our responsibility. Um, but I actually believe it's everybody's responsibility to plan for the future. Um, and of course, money in the end will be, you know, if we do a crowdfunding or something like that, that initial let's get it up and going and show Australia that we can do it. Show Victoria that a coal place can transform into a energy centre for new technologies. One group making just transition ideas into reality is Earthworker, which is a network of community-owned cooperatives. They are creating their first co-op called Eureka's Future in Latrobe Valley, where they will manufacture solar hot water heaters. This is a bit different than other community energy projects we've heard about, but it still enables community members to own the renewable energy generation process. In this case, both the manufacturers and the customers are reclaiming ownership because it's a co-op. I learned more about this from Dan, the secretary of Earthworker, who started by explaining the history of the campaign to shut down Hazelwood and how this led him to want to work on creating alternatives. It was, I think, 2008 when the first big um, switch off Hazelwood campaign organized a big rally down here 
at the gates of Hazelwood, demanding um, the power station's closure. And who was driving that? So there was a, a collective of climate activists who who organised that, um, mostly kind of operating out of Melbourne, mostly based in Melbourne. Yeah, I think this division, or this apparent division between greenies who want to see coal coal phased out and those who don't um, is not necessarily or it shouldn't be really a big division more often than not it's one that's um, that division is really wedged by vested interests that want to see the system as it is continue but also I think there's been plenty of own goals by um, kind of poorly thought out or, or ill-considered um, climate campaigns to shut power stations down which have alienated a whole bunch of people um, who otherwise might be able to be on side for a, a campaign to transition to cleaner energy. So the Switch Off Hazelwood campaign, which is where I became quite involved in the whole question of Hazelwood, um, as I said, it was mainly run out of Melbourne. And it was a really well-intentioned campaign. It was about ensuring that we could do our bit to avoid the climate crisis by phasing out one of the world's dirtiest power stations. Um, so I was motivated entirely by noble goals. And I was, a, I was a, you know, um, a big supporter. I was involved um, as, as a young climate activist in living at the time in Melbourne. Um, and I, you know, my uncle had done an apprenticeship at Hazelwood and I have plenty of family in Gippsland. I've always spent lots of time in Gippsland, but, um, you know, I can see the real threat that climate change posed to, to all of us and to everything. And, um, yeah, supported the calls to switch the power station off. I think though that campaign, partly by nature of the fact that the people involved were mostly living in Melbourne and didn't necessarily come from or have much experience or exposure or understanding of the complexities and the of um, the policy to shut down Hazelwood and what that would mean for people living in and depending on the power the, the region. Um, that it wasn't a very well thought out or executed campaign. The past, the, the 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 first big rally was yeah, I think it was called Switch Off Hazelwood, Switch Off Coal, um, with you know, um, really graphic um, imagery that that portrayed the power station as this kind of looming monster of belching out toxic smoke, um, this big industrial behemoth that was kind of killing the planet, which in many ways is, <laughs> but. Um, that imagery and the campaign framing, the messaging, um, and then the tactics of coming down here to rally um, didn't really take into account what coal means for people down here. And the fact that it, simply switching off Hazelwood without any um, well-planned transition or support mechanisms for those affected is a really scary thing for the Troy Valley community. Mm. Not because they hate the earth and want to see climate change roll about, but because lots of people's livelihoods depend on the employment 
either directly or indirectly associated with the coal industry. And when, you know, um, a couple of hundred passionate protesters descended on the power station, when they descended and, you know, tried to break police lines and shut down the power station, it was seen by many locally as a kind of thoughtless and malicious action against people here who who weren't by and large weren't at all part of that campaign. This protest was the start of some tension and is wrapped up in urban and rural divides and negative associations with greenies and activists. But for Dan it has also led him to change his approach to the situation, which he started to question at a community meeting, hoping to engage people in the campaign. There was a um, an effort made to reach out and explain to the local community the, the, the motivations for the project. There was a really fascinating community meeting that happened about two weeks before that protest here in Morwell at, um, at a community centre. Um, and I was one of the people who helped, you know, letterbox flyers all through the town and invite people along. And in the end, yeah, there was about maybe 30... 30 or 40 people that came along and listened to a presentation on climate change from one of the protest organisers, listened to a, an explanation of why the protest was taking place and what it hoped to achieve. And it was a very fiery meeting to start with. It was, you know, people were pretty, um, yeah, affronted by the whole thing. But it was also a really interesting meeting because by the end of it, um, you know, a few sentiments about trying to work together and understand each other were were shared and resonated with people in a way that um, I found really informative and hopeful. Um, and one thing that stuck with me at that meeting was, was a number of power station workers saying, you know, we're not wedded to the coal industry. We don't like our bosses and we don't necessarily like their work. If there's a green job, if there's a job in renewable energy there, we'd take it any, any day. Um, but there's nothing there at the moment. So until you, you know, there's, there's something there to replace the livelihoods that are keeping this community or parts of this community afloat, don't come here and shut down an industry like that. Um, and so for me, it just, yeah, it just reaffirmed this um, notion that this division is not a real division, right? Yeah, I mean, we, we need to give people choices so that they, we, we can find solutions that work in common interests. When, when we shut down those choices or imagine that those aren't there is when we find we're on opposite sides of divides. A, a really important part of this whole question is the creation of alternatives. This was the start of Dan acting upon this idea of creating green jobs, which is an essential part of this idea of a just transition. Dan explains some of the thinking behind a just transition and why it is so important given the history of privatization in the valley. But also, obviously, <clears throat> underlying that is a, is a moral responsibility, you could argue, to make sure that the people who are most directly affected by the energy transition we need to make, the closure of coal-fired power stations and the transition of our energy system, that those people affected need to be um, supported to ensure that the burden of any change isn't just borne by a small few or a certain few people.
though that the benefits which um, involve you know clean air for everyone and, and ideally a safer climate need to be shared as well as the burdens need to be shared evenly and that um, kind of goes to the heart of the idea of a just transition which is that in any well in, in its broadest sense right in any change we need to make in any transition we need to make we need to ensure that it's a fair one it's a just one if there's a, a place that has learnt what an unjust transition looks like, it's the valley. And so, for, for really pragmatic campaign reasons and for moral reasons, if there's a place that um, where a focus on a just transition is needed, it's here in the valley. And the Troy Valley is a is a really powerful example. When the power industry was privatised in the late 90s or late 80s, 90s. Um, Thousands and thousands of jobs were shed very, very quickly in the restructure of that industry to make it appealing and profitable for private interests. Um, and that had a really devastating impact on this entire community. Many of the results you can still see, there's a huge legacy of social disadvantage here, of economic disadvantage. There's empty shop fronts all the way around here. So the valley... Um, has seen firsthand the, the experience of um, poor, poorly managed, of ill thought out um, industrial transition, economic transition, and that's really conditioned people here to be extra wary about any future industrial change. Dan takes this wariness into account in his approach to a just transition even though his beliefs about the future are a bit different than most. So I think a just transition, the idea is a really, has a, is a really powerful idea for um, potentially unifying people around the, the need and the, or the inevitability of change. But also it can be really restricting in, in imagining what that change would look like. Often, when people think about a just transition, we think, right, we've got to find an equal number of jobs that are kind of similar to what people have, that people can just, every, every worker who's currently employed in the power industry can just switch into. And, hey presto, everything's kind of the same, everyone's okay, and now we've got some other new industry to replace the coal industry. And realistically, I don't think that's going to happen. It's really hard to just set up some kind of identical looking industry here overnight. We've got to look at a much more diverse economy. And for me, that means not just looking at different kinds of waged jobs that people might be able to get, but a more radical rethinking of how we meet our needs as a community and what other um, ways we can sustainably and ethically kind of provision the means of our existence. This is kind of pretty left field. Not many people think about this in the valley, sadly. Um, but I think we're going we're gonna to need to think about this kind of stuff much more around the world. Um, but having said that, there are a few kind of exciting little projects bubbling away. Um, I'll talk about the Earthworker Cooperative at some point. But there's also a cool little Get Stuffed project called Get Stuffed that's being run through Reactivate the Tri Valley, a great community group down here.
that's um, encouraging people who grow food locally to swap um, produce and Skillshare and support um, each other in a growing network of people who can provision food for each other in ways that don't necessarily involve money. I mean, that happens anyway down here, you know, people swap their surplus lemons with neighbours or they give them some extra pears off the tree or whatever. But yeah, doing that in a much bigger way, I think, can help. While some people see the just transition as replacing all the power station jobs with another similar industry, and some think a more diversified economy is needed, everyone can agree that there are many assets in the region to build upon. Manufacturing skills is one of these assets, and Earthworker has chosen to utilize this with the Eureka's Future factory. The, the general notion of diversifying the economy is really important anyway. Having all eggs in one basket is never a very safe way to go about things. Mm. So looking at the other great assets that this region has beyond just, you know, half-cooked black coal sitting under the soil. Um, and that is, yeah, the soil on top of it. We've got great agricultural land all around here, good rainfall, um, great prospects for growing food. And, and there's um, associated with the power industry, but beyond as well, there's a whole um, plethora of really good manufacturing skills and expertise, engineering skills and expertise in the valley. People are a wonderful asset here. So looking at ways to um, utilize that. And that's partly where the Earthworker Cooperative um, comes in as well, is trying to make the most of the great um, heavy engineering and manufacturing skill set and infrastructure down here to look at how we can not just provide dignified employment, but also contribute to the energy transition that we need to make. So the Earthworker Cooperative Project is working to set up ultimately a whole network of community and worker-owned cooperatives, enterprises providing dignified employment where workers own and run their own workplaces, embedded in the communities in which they exist, whilst also providing socially useful goods and services, doing socially useful work, not just work for the sake of work, but work that contributes positively to society and to the planet. So the first project that we're working to set up is a factory down here in Moore, just down the road, to manufacture solar water technology in a worker-owned factory. So trying in a really practical and tangible way to deal with this question of how we might transition um, or help support, be a step in a just transition away from the fossil fuel industry that builds on the assets here, the manufacturing skills and expertise, um, and also deals with this question of how we reduce our, our need to burn brown coal and how we foster a transition to a cleaner energy system. Dan explains how Eureka's future shares the same ideals as community energy projects, but expands on them by pursuing local manufacturing. I think community and renewable energy projects are really exciting and really important going forward. I think community common ownership of more and more of the world and of the means of existence is, is increasingly important, especially um, as we see economic crisis emerging more and more and as we see things like automation changing the way that jobs are done or not done. I think making sure that we 
in common own the means of our own existence, own the means of production, if you like, and um, it's important to make sure that we all can get by and we all benefit from um, uh, benefit from business, benefit from the way the economy works. Community ownership's vital. Um, I think, though, there's in Australia at least, we're kind of um, not dealing with the question in a really foreign way if we don't look too at how we can create the technology and build the technology, the renewable energy technology we need to deal with climate change and the technology that can be part of community owned renewable energy projects. If we're just importing solar panels or wind turbines or um, whatever it might be, I think we're it's not not a really effective way to deal with the problem and we're, we're missing out on on being able to sustain ourselves doing that work as well so i think earthworker fits really neatly into the whole equation by offering a, a way a model to um start building that technology here earthworker is um has an aim of being able to help res restore and, and revive what is otherwise a struggling manufacturing sector in australia by, by um, building a different way of not just producing goods through worker-owned cooperatives, but also distributing green technology. The road to opening Eureka's future has been challenging so far for the volunteer organizers. And this is understandable given the task of converting the old factory to cooperative ownership, making a business plan and attracting investors. But I visited the Eureka's future factory in Warwell I've seen all the equipment and even touched a finished solar hot water heater. So I can assure you that it is a tangible example of green manufacturing, ready to be an example of green jobs and community ownership. Dan explains how this is what gets him through all the ups and downs of navigating bureaucracy and funding challenges. It's about the power of practical and tangible alternatives that he heard about in that first community meeting. But one thing that really stuck with me was that um the coal power station worker at that first meeting who said, look, you know, give us another job, we'll take it. <laughs> but you just gotta, you gotta, we've gotta make sure that there's actually something there. Green jobs are just hollow words until you can show us something tangible. So, um, yeah, that, that stayed with me. I think protest and opposition is really important there's a lot of shit things going on that we need to resist and and stand in the way of. But we also need to answer the question of what we do instead and how to do things better. And to me, Earthworker keeps me going because it's trying to answer that, practically answer that question of what can we do instead? How do we do things differently? It's a yes as well as a no. It's a yes, here's what we can do. Here's why it's better. Let's try it. While Hazelwood's closure leaves a lot of job loss in its wake, it also creates a lot of opportunity for a new phase in the valley. Wendy and Dan are great examples of this hope put into action. They are both bridging the cultural divides in the valley, trying to get everyone involved and empowered. And they are also eliminating the false choices between health and jobs, as well as the environment and jobs. People will no longer have to make these choices if they are able to choose renewable energy products that are locally manufactured and owned. 
So thanks to Earthworker and Voices of the Valley for doing this work. And thanks for listening to Voices of Community Energy.